Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. So good morning, Dr. Wilkins. I'm really glad we, we have another chance to talk further, uh, but it's great to have you. It's great to be here. So uh, fascinating Grand Rounds that you uh, gave last week, and I, I have a lot of, a lot of questions or um, input that I would love to get from you. So you probably know that uh, the Impact Collab Research mission is really to build the nation's capacity to do embedded pragmatic trials in people living with dementia um, in partnership with healthcare systems. And I really believe that if we don't figure out ways, practical ways to embed health equity into the science of these trials at all levels, we're really going to fail at our overlying mission. Agree. Um, yeah. You know, and I think a lot of us have some idea now, a reasonable idea, and in increasingly learning what health equity is, but the challenge is really how to address it. And, uh, you know, I feel like some of this is developmental, where stage one was sort of learning about really what it is, and we really need to move on to stage two and to figure out how to do something about it. So our mission has sort of three pillars, knowledge generation and dissemination, embedding, uh, enabling and funding EPCTs or pragmatic trials. And the third isn't building investigator capacity. So I just wanted to talk about pillar one first and get your insights. So I want to bring up something I asked at Grand Rounds and I, I want to go into it and see if I can push you a little bit on it. So We've been funding these pilots uh, studies, and we've learned pretty early on that the pipeline of evidence supporting interventions for people living with dementia that are really ready for uh, a pragmatic trial, in other words, they already have some level of efficacy evidence, are uh, somewhat few and far between. And so already to move something like that to uh, a pragmatic trial, there's a bunch of adaptations that need to happen. And we've gone on and on about whether these adaptations require going back to, you know, the first part of the stage model or whether, you know, we can do them reasonably to prepare these trials for pilots or for EPCTs beforehand. And so we are getting a few applications targeting minority populations, a few for particularly in Latino populations. And we might have a, a reasonable intervention that's been done more generally for dementia um, and they want to modify it the investigator for a latino population we're also in a bit of a race against time um, so in grand rounds you were pretty clear that you felt even even still we have to move back to stage one i'm, I'm talking a lot but i'm setting the scene to do these adaptations and i want to i really want to push you on this because of the time element are there in terms of adapting these interventions for minority people of different background, do we really have to go back to stage one or is there some shortcuts or some wiggle room there? No, I, I remember the question very well. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I remember being pretty definitive in my answer there. And, and that was, you know, that was purposeful because we're towards the end of the time and I wanted to make sure there was not too much ambiguity in my answer there. 
Uh, but it's certainly, you know, a lot more nuanced than, yes, you have to start over. It depends on, you know, what kind of intervention we're talking yeah. about um, and, you know, how it was studied and, you know, what elements of that intervention we actually think work or, you know, are the reasons behind, you know, why these interventions work. So so it, it certainly is a lot more complex than just they all have to restart. But the reason I was more definitive is because I think people see that as an opening to not critically evaluate the evidence and yeah. and, and thoughtfully consider whether or not um, this should work. Um, so, you know, if we are talking about adaptations that are are really related to culture and behavior and access and and those sorts of things we should not presume that it's going to work in a a different population of people that it's not been you know adequately adequately tested in uh, so you know we, we make this mistake of assuming that we're now ready to test something that already has evidence that it, it is going to work, and we don't actually have that. I mean, honestly, it's a problem globally, not just with this issue. It's just, as I mentioned, that the pipeline of these interventions that are truly ready are so small, and yet we have this tension of needing to do this work and move it forward, I don't know, quickly. And, you know, whether or not... As you mentioned, every aspect of the intervention means adaptation means going back to stage one, or is there some, depending on the complexity of the intervention, et cetera, is there some, not quite shortcuts, but some fast track that you can do um, because uh, there's a lot of work to be done. (laughs) Yeah, I think we also have to ask ourselves a fundamental question about sort of, you know, what are our expectations as it relate to contributing to or eliminating inequities in health outcomes? Because if we're, if we've developed an intervention and, you know, we're, we're so pressed to, you know, move to the next step and stage, in part because we're telling ourselves that, you know, there are these disparities and inequities that need to be solved. Are we confident enough in what we've already created to be sure that we're not actually going to worsen these disparities? Huh, that's interesting. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Like, in what way, give me an example or what you mean by worsen. Well, so so let's let's say that your intervention is is going to be some you know cognitive behavioral therapy or you know some cognitive stimulation that was yeah. was was based on we'll say a game or that was developed in people who don't who who speak English uh, and who are Westernized Americanized or you know. Uh, acculturated, even if they are from some other background or um, or country, uh, and the the words in the game are you know words that are familiar to uh, people who are who who grew up in the United States, and um, who the the prompts are based on 
cultural cues that are really relevant only to people who grew up in, in the United States and spoke English. And yet we've seen some, you know, evidence that, oh, yes, people are maintaining their, you know, cognitive function or they're, you know, improving somehow on, you know, neuropsych tests based on, on this intervention, which is, you know, just simple. It's a game and it doesn't cost that much to, you know, translate it into Spanish but you are translating word for word. You're not transcreating. And um, you tell yourself you have to translate word for word because the intervention is based on syllables and cues, historical cues that are really not relevant to this population that you now want to use it in. And the Spanish language is a romantic language. And, you know, the number of syllables are going to be different. And um, you know, a direct translation is not actually going to be that useful. So, you know, we could, you could translate this game and all the aspects into, into Spanish and then deploy it and find that, you know, some of the, you know, the prompts are actually triggering depressive symptoms or uh, making people feel more um, weary about their, their memory or potential memory loss. You, you actually have no idea if these words are even relevant um, in, um, in people who grew up outside of the, of the United States. So, so maybe your uh, process of, or, or apt adaptation is going to consider all of those things and incorporate them, but you still didn't test it. Right. And I guess there's also considerations of really who's involved in the transformation, so to speak, and the stakeholders in taking X intervention and making it appropriate and applicable to, let's say, a Latino Latinx population. You know, who, it, it feels like a, a reasonably big step that has to move beyond just translation to make it appropriate for that culture. Exactly. You know, we... We just finished in the last couple of weeks creating just recruitment materials in Spanish uh, for a, you know, a study we're doing of uh, amyloid PET imaging. And again, we, we did not just directly translate. We did a transcreation process of um, you know, taking what the, the information that we intended to communicate in English and determining what that would be in Spanish, again, not a direct translation, but what, what did we mean or what did we want to communicate? And we still needed to, you know, have individuals from, you know, multiple countries and, you know, backgrounds in, in Central and Latin America review those documents, that material, because, you know, the dialects are different, the words mean different things, and, um, you know, different uh, Spanish dialect. So it's a really complex, you know, process. Yeah. Which of course is why we want to go quickly. It takes, uh, it takes yeah. time. It takes time. It takes time. So. Well, well, that's helpful. So let's just move on to pillar three for, for a second. And that's our trying to build investigator capacity. Impact supports um, career development awards. We have a, a large training workshop, but, um, among everybody, really, if you're going to do an embedded 
pragmatic trial, a person like myself, it, it uh, sometimes usually comes a bit later in the career as a trialist because that's the stage model and we have to move through it, etc. Uh, and there's not a lot of investigators in general that, you know, fill the integration between or, you know, the intersection, I should say, between dementia and pragmatic trials and, and healthcare systems. And so I wanted your advice or thoughts about how to attract, engage investigators, uh, whether it be PhD investigators or clinician scientists, uh, uh, people of color, different backgrounds in, into impact and uh, into this work. Well, I, I hear two issues there. So one is, you know, that we, we need more investigators who are doing research in in dementia and you know trained in and experts in in pragmatic trials period um, yeah. but but that also can do this work with a health equity lens and yeah. and I think that group of people obviously does not have to be individuals from racial and ethnic groups that yeah. have been minoritized. And then yeah. the other issue is we would love to have more people from, from uh, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups or minoritized groups uh, to, um, to be in this space because there is added value in you know, bringing that lived experience to, to the science. And, and I, I like to make those distinct because I think it's important for that latter group of, of individuals to not just feel like they should be doing work in addressing health inequities and health disparities because they yeah. are from these minoritized groups, that we want to value um, that input and open doors for them to contribute to scientific discoveries across the board. And certainly in Alzheimer's disease, we, we have so many disparities that we, we need more people who are doing, doing this work. I think pragmatic trials in general are both attractive uh, from the standpoint of, of evidence generation, but, but also uh, a potential concern from the standpoint of, of health equity. And I brought this up during my presentation when we, when we talk about real world trials, you know, whose real world is it that we're talking about? In our real world, unfortunately, uh, there are embedded in the structures, uh, racism, um, disadvantage, and, um, you know, marginalization. So if we are relying on the real world without you know, making some adjustments, adaptations, or considerations for additional data that is needed, then are are we? Do we really have any chance of of addressing these inequities? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an awesome point and very on, on the mark. I mean, I often look, think about the pressy wheel and its different domains, and the real world affects each of those. Each of those one, each of those 
spikes on the wheel. So I, I gave an example during Grand Rounds and it just, it, it haunts me is that like we did a large pragmatic trial in nursing homes where we tried to show a video to about advanced care planning to all the nursing home residents during the implementation period. And we found that the white residents were more likely to be shown a video than the black residents. And so, you know, the intervention delivery mirrored exactly the built-in inequities and disparities that occur in the real world. And I think um, we have to really think about that as we think that this is, you know, a, a rigorously done trial. And then we interpret the outcomes in these different subgroups, but we don't recognize that for in this example, for example, there was inequitable implementation and delivery. But that's the uh, real world, yeah. right? That that's that's, <laughs> that's that that's the real world. That is what's happening every day in the real world. Um, yeah. And but but do we do we actually know why that is happening? Now, certainly, yeah. we could say there are biases in you know the implementation, and you know staff didn't you know think or want to or believe that people could yeah. understand it. But it could also be that the residents would not want to watch the video or, you know, consume this information without having their families there because yeah. they make decisions as a family. And um, that that is part of, of their identity and you know, way of being, um, that, that this is not something that they would want to do um, without their families. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, it, there's this huge added layer of considerations in a pragmatic trial because you are dealing with the real world and, you know, then a finely tuned, highly controlled experiment. Um, you know, even we talk, you know, now I move on to a different part of the pressy wheel, but it's uh, subject identification. And so if we're doing it pragmatically, we often rely on a, a electronic health record to, and various algorithms to identify people uh, with dementia within that healthcare system, because that's how you do it pragmatically. And then if we want to further look at the distribution of minorities or race or ethnic background in those uh, populations, we're, we're relying on the EHR and, and therefore we're relying on how well those parameters are actually covered you know, captured in an EHR and how accurate they are and what they really mean. Um, right, right. So there are multiple issues <laughs> in that, you know, in relying on on EHR for identification. So, you know, one, we know that um, people who are from, you know, racial and ethnic minority groups are less likely to see a dementia specialist. So they're yeah. less likely... Um, to perhaps have their uh, cognitive impairment documented. And certainly we know they're less likely to have a diagnosis. And, and even if they do have a diagnosis, um, that diagnosis tends to come at a later stage in dementia. Uh, and so we're, we're not necessarily talking about a population of people um, that have the same um, comorbidities, disease status, level of cognitive impairment uh, if you're comparing across racial and ethnic groups. Uh, and then you've already mentioned, you know, the issues around, you know, documentation of race, ethnicity, and the 
um, electronic health records, you know, they're in general, you know, 20 to 30% of, of health records are missing uh, race, ethnicity, uh, and if you add language there, sometimes that number goes up in some systems, it actually goes down. You know, um, you know, we are at Vanderbilt, we're actually better at collecting language data than, um, than collecting, uh, you know, race and ethnicity data. But, you know, is that documented? And, and if, if it's documented, can we, are we confident that people were asked the questions about, you know, their identity, or could it have been presumed or assumed and documented by a third party? Um, so, so, so many issues if we're, you know, just depending on, on the EHR for identifying these yeah. groups. There are so many issues. Um, I could talk to you probably for a long time, um, but we should probably, um, um, you know, in the podcast, but I, I hope, I really, really thank you. You've given us a lot to think about. And I, I have a feeling the impact collaboratory will be calling on your expertise as we move forward and really try to, um, more than move the needle here, but really give some, um, meaningful change in the way, uh, we do these pragmatic trials, how they're designed and how they're conducted through a lens of health equity. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.